Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be reviewing the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings. This is a movie that came out maybe a couple years ago, and it was directed by Ridley Scott. And I have to admit, I am a big fan of Ridley Scott. I'm a big fan of Blade Runner, Alien, just anything he does. Black Hawk Down. He's an excellent director, and he puts a lot of striking imagery and striking scenes into his movies that uh, really inspire emotional effect. What Ridley Scott tries for here is historical accuracy. This is what he tries for. And you, you see some of his own biases come through in the film, but I think it's good enough that uh, I showed it to my children every Friday night or whatnot. I go over history lessons with my kids, and the Exodus was this last Friday, and this movie was perfect to show them. And as the movie played, we talked about how Ridley Scott's vision differed from that of the Bible, the similarities, the differences, things that he took leeway with, things that he portrayed accurately. It's always good to give kids a sense of what times would have been like if, if they were transported back there. You know, the type of conditions they lived in, the, the type of uh, communities, the type of dress that they had, the type of warfare. Movies are great for teaching history. So even if someone doesn't like some of the elements in a particular movie, as long as the movie has some sort of historicity to it that can transport the watcher back into those times so they could sympathize, empathize with those people, it does serve some value. The movie begins, and already Moses is a grown man. Israel has been in slavery for 400 years. The movie places the Exodus around 1300 B.C., this is the time during the downfall of the Hittites, of uh, the Egyptians, the arrival of the Sea Peoples. I think I posted a history lesson on God is Open about one scholar and his views about the compounding calamities of that time frame that led to the downfalls of all these great peoples. So 1300, that's fine. There's other dates that have been thrown around everywhere from 1250 BC all the way back to maybe 450 BC. Can't really fault him for his dating. As such, the film opens with Egypt in conflict with the Hittites. And we also posted a documentary on the Hittites on God is Open, uh, maybe an hour and a half documentary on who they were, kind of their rise and their, kind of their fall. And it's interesting to learn about these peoples, these ancient peoples. So watch that documentary, learn about the Hittites, the film starts, they're fighting off the Hittites. Egypt has a decisive victory. Moses is part of this because Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household and has become a general in the army. Of course, this account is not available in the biblical record. The biblical record doesn't say anything about his kind of his activities like that while in Egypt. And it also records that when he is about 40 years old, he fled Egypt. In the movie, Moses does kill Egyptian guards, but that's not the reason for his fleeing. The reason for his fleeing in the movie is because he is found out as an Israelite. Of course, in the biblical text, he flees because he knows he's an Israelite. He knows he's a Hebrew. He sees a Hebrew being oppressed, and then he kills that Egyptian guard. In the movie, he seems pretty cavalier about killing Egyptian soldiers, just like you might think about like in a movie where the big bad guy just goes around killing his henchmen for no apparent reason with no repercussions. But that's not the biblical account, and it was a serious crime to kill Egyptian soldiers who were torturing slaves. 
Moses flees, and in the movie, he meets his wife. He just brandishes a sword to ward off the shepherds who were threatening his future wife. In the movie, it might be a series of 10 years before he decides to go back to Egypt after his encounter with Yahweh. In the biblical text, of course, he's 80 years old by the time he gets back to Egypt. He's an 80-year-old man. He spent 40 years as a shepherd. Christian Bale, of course, is not playing a 40-year-old man. He's not playing an 80-year-old man. He's playing maybe a 25-year-old fleeing Egypt and maybe a 35 to 40-year-old coming back to Egypt. What very much interests me about these accounts of the Exodus is when Moses meets God on Mount Sinai, what that account looks like. And let's hear very briefly from the TV miniseries, The Bible, and see how the History Channel might take this encounter. Moses. I am here. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. You are real. I am. I have seen the misery of my people. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring them out of Egypt. But how can I set them free? I'm not a prince now. I'm nothing. I will be with you. That was painful. Ah, that was painful. It's like, who who writes this stuff? Did you guys even read the account of Moses meeting Yahweh? Moses wasn't willing. Moses didn't want to go. He's this old guy, and he keeps resisting God. God keeps saying, hey, let's go do this. You're going to be my spokesman. It's going to be all good. And he says, no, that's a bad idea. I won't be safe. I don't know who you are. I don't know your name. Give me a name. He's like, I can't speak very well. And God has to keep on, keep on answering his objections. And God gets furious at one point and God changes his plan. He says, you were to be my spokesman, uh, but no longer. We're going to send Aaron because that satisfies your complaint, your excuse for not going. Moses just resists and resists. And in this Bible miniseries, Moses is this dopey guy, and he just kind of walks around like a stoner with a smile on his face. Like, oh yeah, God, I'm a smiley guy. I'll go do this with your power. It can be accomplished. That's not in the text. Not in the text. And this is supposed to be the more accurate of the Bible series, the mini Bible series that we have available to us. Oh man, it's bad. It also seems to be missing something in God introducing himself as you see in the Bible miniseries, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whereas in the text of the Bible, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. 
and he identifies himself personally with each individual. It's, it's more of a relationship than just listing off a list of people who you were just a god of for this group of people. No, it's not about that. It's about individuals. It's about personal relationships. So let's contrast this to Exodus Gods and Kings. In the movie, Moses doesn't believe in God. He might be like an atheist or agnostic, but his wife is a believing Yahwehist. She's an Israelite. They have a Jewish ceremony. She talks about Yahweh to him. But in the biblical text itself, Yahweh's name was not known to people at this point. So at most, they'd be monotheists. They wouldn't have had adopted all the 12 tribes of Israel type of uh, garb, that uh, mentality. And towards the end of Exodus, Gods, and Kings, Moses, the character Moses in the movie, talks about separating the tribes into multiple peoples, which I think was a good addition. Uh, it's, it's historical fiction, so it's not trying to represent what actually happened. It's trying to conjecture how things came to be, how they are, one man's best guess. We shouldn't be faulting the movie for filling in gaps where there's missing information. We can better fault the movie to where they disregard the information that we do find in the biblical account and replace it with something that they want, maybe something to make the movie more dramatic. But in the movie, Moses doesn't believe in God. He goes up on Mount Sinai one day and he is hit by a rock. After he wakes up, it almost seems like in the movie that he's hallucinating meetings with Yahweh, but there are certain indications from his interactions that this is not a hallucination. Both Ridley Scott and Christian Bale, I think both of them think that Moses is a psychopath. I know that Christian Bale stated that in our interview, that that's when he's studying Moses, that's who he thinks he was, just a psychopath, a crazy guy. And in the movie, the king thinks so as well for a time being until everything starts going down and there's a little bit more evidence to believe that Moses is who he says he is. But let's listen to the encounter that we find in Exodus Gods and Kings on Mount Sinai. Real quick, when I say Mount Sinai, a lot of people consider Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai the same place. Just consider them for the purposes of this podcast the same place. Help me! I think my leg is broken. More than that. What did you say? Who are you? Who are you? I'm a shepherd. I thought you were a general. I need a general. Why? To fight. What else? Fight who? For what? I think you know. I think you should go and see what's happening to your people now. You won't be at peace until you do. Or are they not people, in your opinion? Who are you? I am. Ridley Scott likes to be dramatic, so he puts a lot of pauses between his words, so I had to cut out some of that. So that text might have ran pretty quickly, comparatively to what you'd see in the movie. But you get the idea. That is the conversation. In the Ridley Scott movie, 
Moses doesn't quite know what to do. He has to figure out kind of on his own. And he goes and has multiple of these conversations with this little child, which is identified in the movie as the messenger of Yahweh. Some critics criticized the movie for that. They said, oh, Yahweh was depicted as a spoiled British kid. Well, uh, not really. Instead, that was the messenger, and you often find this messenger being called Yahweh within the Bible, an avatar, someone who acts as a stand-in for Yahweh. Maybe some people would say this is a Christophany, but it's not unheard of when you're dealing with biblical revelations of Yahweh. I'd say using a kid is within the realm of artistic license. Here's another exchange between the two. This is later on after Moses goes back to Egypt. Unlike in the biblical text, he does not take his family. Unlike the biblical text, he engages in uh, insurgency. But the thing I like about this is it seems to reference Exodus 2, 23-25, in which the king of Egypt died, the children groaned because of their bondage. Exodus 2, 24, so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Where have you been? Watching you fail. Wars of attrition take time. At this rate, it'll take years. A generation. I am prepared to fight for that long. I'm not. After 400 years of slavery. Am I the only one sitting here who's done nothing about this until now? I do know a few things about military action. Still, if you're not going to listen to me, then why did you take me away from my family? I didn't. You did. You don't need me. Maybe not. So what do I do? Nothing. For now, you can watch. You get in this exchange some tension between Moses and God, and it might be the wrong type of tension. The tension that you find in the Bible is more of Moses does, doesn't want to perform. He's out there by himself. Everyone's against him. Uh, the people of Israel is against him. Like in this movie, Exodus, Gods and Kings, and even in the Bible Manus series, all the people, they rally to him. Oh, what a great savior. He's going to lead us. That's, that's not what's in the Bible. It's not what's in the Bible. God said, you will convince him with all these miracles. And so he goes there and does all the miracles. But as soon as there's any resistance within Pharaoh, all the people, all of Israel rebels against Moses. They say, stop doing this stuff. You're just making our lives harder. Go away. He's on his own. It's him and Aaron and Yahweh behind him as a power. But anyways, this exchange shows some of that tension, a different type of tension, and I do like that. It also talks about that 400 years that God was waiting and watching. And note in the biblical text, the 400 years wasn't 400 years of slavery. The slavery was fairly recent. Within Moses' own lifetime when he was born, 80 years before this time that we're talking about, 
That's really when the persecution began. It's when the Israelites started to get slaughtered and then they were put into slavery to ward against an uprising. Remember, the Israelites were multiplying at a tremendous speed and and this is a foreign people group living in Egypt. And so the Pharaoh is worried that these people are going to rise up and take over his territory. In the movie Exodus Gods and Kings, Moses only confronts Pharaoh two times. In the biblical text, it seems that he comes and goes. He might be just a curiosity to the Pharaoh, but it doesn't seem like he's in any real danger at any point in the biblical text. He might be, you might be able to read that in that Pharaoh wanted him dead, but was interested in these miracles, seeing how far they went. And then once those miracles started coming true, as prophesied, he might have had an aura of invincibility just because of the miracles that are happening and they want those miracles to be able to stop. They don't want them to start up again and they don't want to kill him and accidentally end up with uh, eternal plague. Maybe, maybe that's the reason that Moses was able to get out without any real threats upon his life. In the movie, the plagues are all described by natural means. The river of blood that is due to crocodiles coming and attacking all the Egyptians and just filling the water with blood. And that spawns the frogs. The frogs have to get out of the water and the frogs all die, leading to lice and flies. The flies lead to spread of contagion to the animals and to people. So you have the plague of animals, the boils, and all this stuff, really Scott seems to tie to natural phenomena, but there's also kind of a hints that this is divine as well. Just the timing how things happen at serendipitous moments in succession, and especially the angel of death at the end where it goes through and kills all the firstborn of all the Egyptian children. They don't show the cattle firstborn being killed in the biblical text, the cattle that is left from the animal plague. Even those animals have their firstborn killed, not shown in the movie. Remember from the biblical text, in Exodus 3, God mentions this is his end game. Even before any of these other miracles starts, even before Moses tries to convince Pharaoh by other means, God says, I got this plan to kill their firstborn. It almost seems like revenge for Pharaoh killing all of the Israelite children. The biblical text doesn't say this explicitly, but I think you could kind of see it in just, just the irony, the setup in which Pharaoh kills a bunch of Israelite children. God retaliates in turn and kills a bunch of Egyptian children. The movie seems to pay tribute to this. There's a scene where Pharaoh threatens to kill a bunch of Israelite children. And then God comes up with this plan to kill the Egyptian children as a result. The movie does its fair share to foreshadow the pain that's to come. It shows Pharaoh's bond with his child, and there are children imagery. As death moves over the children, as the angel of death goes door to door, you really get a sense of what it feel like to be a parent and to wake up in the middle of the night and your firstborn child is dead. So I like that. I like that imagery that you could really empathize with, especially if you have children of your own. You understand the emotional pain that Pharaoh goes through, that his wife goes through. There's a scene of her rocking an empty crib. Just the devastation that this would have caused. And my kids, they asked, you know, why did they do this? Why, why didn't God just kill the parents? 
Well, if you're looking for maximum mental devastation, you target the children. And that's what seems to be going on here. Ridley Scott picks up on this, and then there is this scene. Let's listen. The children died last night. As did mine. Is this your God? Killer of children! What kind of fanatics worship such a God? No Hebrew child died last night. Back to the homeland of your dreams. Back It's this scene that in the movie, Pharaoh really understands that Yahweh is behind everything that happens. It's, it's too much just to be a coincidence. It's too much that just the firstborn of all these children die and not the other children, not the children of the Israelites. And he makes the accusations against Yahweh that a lot of modern people, when they read this text, that would make that God is in there and he's killing children. He can't comprehend it. Would an Egyptian pharaoh of the 13th century talk like that, think like that? Maybe, maybe not. But it seems to be Ridley Scott's own projection, his own theological commentary on the text. This is a very powerful scene, and it does show the audience the emotion that might have been behind the entire exodus. As the Israelites leave, all the Egyptians are surrounding them. They're spitting at them. They're mad at them. They're angry. They have just lost all their children. They want these Israelites gone. Quickly, though, Pharaoh changes his mind. He watches his wife manic depressively rock this empty cradle she is devastated she is most emotionally destroyed and he rallies the troops and his goal is not to recapture israel he's it's not to recapture slaves to build his city his goal is to slaughter them all kill them all because he is mad at the devastation that they have wrought and he chases them down moses in the meantime in the movie he brings them to a place it looks like it's north of the strait that's at that bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. Seems like that's where he brings them. I would argue for probably a crossing a lot farther south. I'd probably argue for the crossing point argued in the documentary movie Mountain of Fire. Interesting movie. It argues for a Mount Sinai within Arabia. In the climax of the movie, Moses leads them to the sea, the ocean, the beach. They are hedged in by the oncoming hordes of Egyptian soldiers. They're all going to be cut to pieces. But suddenly, miraculously, there's like a meteor strike or something, and the water pulls back. There's dry land, and Israel crosses on dry land with Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit. 
the visuals of this scene are amazing. There, there's a little bit of uh, dramatic flair. You have Moses bringing a rear guard to face the Egyptians down. The rear guard retreats, but and both Moses and the Pharaoh get swept up in the water. Moses has to swim out of the water. Of course, that's all fabricated for dramatic effects, so you could have this last standoff. All these directors like to put in their movies these last standoffs between the big honchos of each side, and Peter Jackson's terrible at this, just a terrible director. Peter Jackson always wants to put a 30-minute fight scene between two individuals who are deemed the expert fighters or the best people on both sides, and there's all these oh, this guy's dead, but he's not really dead, and then he's going to come back. Ah, oh, it's just, it's just it's stupid. I don't like Peter Jackson. But anyways, Moses gets to the other side. Pharaoh's army's destroyed. Pharaoh survives and is able to survey the wreck on his nation. And the implication is that in 1300, that this wreck of a lot of his army led to the eventual downfall and overthrow of the Egyptian empire in that time frame. So Ridley Scott is tying this into where he thinks the Exodus would fall to play into Egyptian history. The movie reunites Moses with his wife. Of course, within the biblical text, he brings his wife and son with him to Egypt. In the movie, they reunite, and it's supposed to be romantic or whatnot. And then it fast-forwards to Mount Sinai, where Moses is carving the Ten Commandments. And I would have liked to see more of that scene. I would have liked to see the exchanges that go on in which God wants to destroy Israel. And really, Ridley Scott could have used this for his commentary on the biblical text, his source material, because he likes to have that commentary. And it might have suited his agenda to talk about the possible destruction of Yahweh of his own people after he had just destroyed the Egyptians. So I'm sad that that wasn't in there. That would have been a good scene. It would have uh, really filled the movie out. It fast forwards again to Moses in his old age. Of course, in the biblical text, Moses dies when he's maybe like 120. So he lives to be a really old guy. And he does all this other stuff in his 80s. He's an old guy. So let's pretend I was a script writer for an Exodus movie. You would start with Moses probably as a baby all of Israel is getting killed. Their children are getting murdered. And so Moses is put in a basket in the river to be saved. He, of course, is rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Pharaoh's court. Maybe add in those princely themes that you see within Exodus Gods and Kings, where he's raised as a general, a fighter, a man of substance. But you'd put in that he was exiled for killing an Egyptian soldier who was whipping a Jewish slave. He understands that he's Jewish. He un understands he's an Israelite. He goes out, finds a wife, meets God on Mount Sinai. The conversation does not go quite as it does in these other movies, these other depictions in which he willingly goes along with God. He's resistant. He doesn't want to go. He likes his current life. He doesn't want change. He's stuck in his ways. He keeps on making up excuses. God is powerful. God counters him. God overrides him. God is angered at his resistance, but God solves the issue decisively. Unwillingly, Moses then goes to Egypt. He confronts Pharaoh after talking to the people, after showing the people the miracles. The people are initially on board with Moses and want to support him, but none of them go to Pharaoh with Moses and Aaron. They don't support him in that sense. And as soon as there's any resistance in Pharaoh, 
they fall apart. They're not his support base anymore. Moses and Aaron are on their own against Pharaoh. Pharaoh is increasingly stubborn against all those miracles as they occur, one after the other. He doesn't want to let the people go until, of course, that final miracle. I'm calling them miracles, plagues, whatever you want to call them. The angel of death sweeps through Egypt, kills all the firstborn, firstborn of all the animals. Maybe we could get PETA to protest this movie. That'd be good. But you'd end up with millions of people trapped in an ocean, hedged in by incoming forces from Pharaoh. And the people again rebel. Why did you lead us here to the slaughter? You get a little of that in Exodus Gods and Kings when the people show a little bit of resistance. So Ridley Scott does understand that there was dissent within the Israelite ranks against Moses, but that quickly evaporates. I don't know if the dramatic effect was quite captured in the movie as Ridley Scott wanted it to be done, but I had no personal buy-in. It, it, didn't, it didn't resonate with me. It seemed half-hearted without a history of the people's resistance against Moses. One last thing, in the movie... It's funny that they mention the number of Israelites and they throw out the number 400,000. And it's purposely placed in the dialogue. It's kind of a forced dialogue. And what they're signaling to the audience is that they reject the Bible's numbers on the number of people who left Egypt. And they're going for a lot smaller amount. They think the biblical account is exaggerated. It really didn't serve a purpose except to be commentary on the Bible. Anyways... As always, if you have questions about open theism, if you have questions about this podcast, feel free to submit that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.